Exodus chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 22, and then, Lord willing, study through chapter 6, verse 13 this morning. If you would take your copy of God's Word when you have that passage and stand with me out of respect, I will read this portion of Scripture for us. Exodus chapter 5, verses 22 to chapter 6, verse 13. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? For ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. But the Lord replied to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go, and because of a strong hand, he will drive them from this land. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. Also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I've heard the groanings of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from his land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, If the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me, since I am such a poor speaker? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Well, friends, we know that in this life, everyone faces adversity, and that's hard. Seasons of difficulty that harm us, that, that discourage us. Uh, we do our best to achieve uh, good goals and purposes, but quite often we fall short. And when that happens, when we face unforeseen setbacks and delays and discouragement, all too often we are confused and disoriented. Uh, The great 20th century philosopher Mike Tyson famously said, everyone has a plan until he gets punched in the mouth. (laughs) And that's what adversity feels like, isn't it? It feels like getting punched in the mouth. And in this passage, Moses is really facing adversity. You know, he came to Egypt in obedience to God's command to proclaim to Pharaoh uh, that Pharaoh would let the people of Israel go, but Pharaoh had not responded well. Instead, Pharaoh sought to divide the people of Israel from Moses by forcing the people of Israel to do uh, more work, making bricks without straw, and Pharaoh's plan, we saw last week, was effective. In verse 21, we saw that once the foremen of Israel realized that their workload was not going to be reduced at all, they actually turned on Moses and blamed him for all of their suffering. And that's really where we begin the, the passage this morning. This is the kind of the context and what Moses is facing as we look at verses 22 and 23 and really all the way to chapter 6, verse 13. Moses had just been punched in the mouth. So how's he going to respond? 
This is a really wonderful and encouraging passage of Scripture, and I hope that you will hear that as we think about it together this morning, because God in this passage just puts His sovereignty and His faithfulness and His graciousness on display with such clarity in this passage. It's also a passage that encourages us for this reason, because it's very realistic about what it means to be a Christian who faces adversity. Uh, You see, Moses doesn't respond perfectly in this passage to the adversity that he is facing. And you know what? Quite often when we face adversity, we don't either. But as we look at this passage, we see that our God is perfectly faithful. And we see the way that God guides Moses through this season of adversity and takes him on the next step of obedience to God's perfect will. And so this is a passage that can teach us a lot about about how we can face adversity in our own lives. I know that many of you this morning are facing adversity. I know some of what you're facing. I don't know all of what you're facing, but I know many of you this morning feel like you are facing adversity, like like you've been punched in the mouth. So if that's you, I want you to listen up this morning because this passage in particular speaks to you where you are today. And I think you'll find it very, very hopeful. We're going to study this passage this morning using three points, and these three points really are three steps to help you face adversity. If you're taking notes, three steps for facing adversity from Exodus chapter 5, verses 22 to chapter 6, verse 13. The first step is to turn to God. We're going to see that when we look at chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. The second step is to remember God's character. We'll see that when we look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. And the third step is rest in God's sovereignty. We'll think about that when we look at verses 10 to 13 together. Let's look at that first step then, turn to God, verses 22 to 24. It's very true that where you turn for help when you face trouble, it says a lot about you. Uh, Some people, probably many people, when they are facing adversity, they they continue to look to themselves. They they just decide, I'm just going to have to try harder, and they try harder and harder. And despite the fact that it's not working out, they continue to look to themselves to try to figure out their problems. And quite often, that reveals a heart of pride. For other people, when they're facing adversity, instead of actually trying to get real help, they will numb themselves using sinful things like alcohol or pornography or or shopping for some new thing, and, and they're, they're trapped in bondage, and they demonstrate the fact that they're still trapped in sin's bondage. Last week in verse 15, we saw that when the Israelite foremen, when they were uh, facing adversity, they actually went to Pharaoh, which doesn't really make sense, because Pharaoh never had the, the good of the people in his heart at all. It showed their foolishness that they would turn to Pharaoh rather than to turn to God. But in verses 22 to 24, what I want us to see is that when Moses faces adversity, he does the right thing here. He turns to God, and that demonstrates that he had faith, that he trusted God, that he trusted God to be one who helps his people. Even though, you'll notice, Moses had honest questions. So look at verse 22 to 24. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, "'O Lord, why have you done evil to this people?' Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. 
Now, looking at these verses, uh, it's very clear that Moses was confused and frustrated by his experience. Again, he had obeyed God's word to leave Midian and to come back to Egypt at great personal risk. He had obeyed God's command to go before Pharaoh, this mighty king, and declare to him that he must let the people of Israel go. And yet things had not turned out the way he was expecting them to turn out. Now, the Lord had said to him that Pharaoh was not going to immediately obey But I don't think Moses ever expected that Pharaoh would actually ratchet up the oppression against God's people. I think that took Moses by surprise. And now he's facing the people of Israel themselves. Now he's got pressure on both sides. He's got Pharaoh leaning in on him. Now he's got the people of Israel leaning in on him as well. He's facing adversity. And so what does he do? Well, he brings his complaint to God. And that's what you're seeing in verses 22 to 24. Here's Moses coming to God and asking what I believe are honest questions. Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. What are we to think of this? Uh, What are we to think of Moses's words here? Uh, Is Moses sinning uh, here in verses 22 to 24? I don't think so. Uh, He's clearly struggling right? He, he is impacted. He's clearly struggling as he faces these circumstances, but I don't think he is sinning in any way against God. I don't, I don't think he's sinfully accusing God of wrong. And if you ever do accuse God of wrong from the heart, you actually are sinning against God. But I do think he's being honest with God. And instead, listen, instead of faithlessly kind of turning his back on God, I think he is by faith turning to God and he's bringing his honest questions to God. Some Christians wonder if that's okay. Is it okay to ask honest questions to God? And I think the answer has to be yes. Why? Because when you read through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that's what you see godly people doing. Uh, They're bringing honest questions to God as they face adversity in their life. So consider Abraham in Genesis 15. That's what he does. He cries out, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless? That's what Job does over and over in the book of Job as he cries out to God, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? That's what the psalmist does. You know, the psalms are given to us to teach us how to worship God, and they include all of these questions of coming to God and asking these questions of God. Why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Why have you forgotten me? Does anyone feel that way this morning? Like God's forgotten you? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? That's what Habakkuk did when he saw the coming destruction of his people by the the more evil Babylonians. He said, why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? And that's what the Lord Jesus himself does on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's what Moses is doing in this passage as well. Now, Moses is confused. He is frustrated, but his faith is shining through. How? Because he's not turning away from God. He's turning to God, and he's bringing honest questions to God. I do not believe this is sinful anger. I do not think this is unbelief. I think this is what faith looks like when it's pressed. I think think faith moves towards God even in the midst of the pressure. Brothers, sisters, you face adversity this morning. I hope that you will find Moses' example encouraging to you. Some of the godliest men who've ever lived have been honest with their questions about, and they brought them to God. And you can bring your honest questions to God as well.
Uh, Lord, you, you can say, where are you, God? Uh, you can say, why have you allowed this to happen to me? You can say, how long am I going to have to suffer this way? But even as we bring honest questions to God, we do need to remember that we need to do so with a humble heart. Uh, you see, God is big and we are not big. God is eternal and we are momentary. God is great and we are little enough. God sees, and this is important, God sees all things perfectly, past, present, and future. It is impossible for him to make a mistake. And we see just a small portion. And so as we approach our God, even as we bring honest questions to him, interacting with him as our heavenly father, we do so with a humble heart. And we remember that God may not give us an answer. You know, he never did answer Job's question, even though Job repeatedly asked questions for 30 chapters. But you notice all throughout the Bible that God is always faithful to his people. There is never one place in God's word where you see God fail to be faithful even to his suffering people. And that's such good news for us this morning because there will be no point in your life, brother or sister, even as you face suffering, that God will ever fail to be faithful to you. And so by his grace, you can turn to him and you can bring honest questions to him. Our God is faithful. Our God will rescue at the right time. He will bring us out of the trial at the right time. Let me make one more observation in verse 22 to 23 before we move on. Notice that God is sovereign over our adversity. He's sovereign. He's big. God is in control. He's not a small deity. I do not know, uh, I know for some of you, but I don't know for all of you, what particular form of suffering you're experiencing, what particular form of adversity that you're experiencing this morning. I do know who's in charge of it. I do know who's in charge of it. You see, our God is sovereign over the suffering of his people. He's sovereign over all things. Look at what Moses says in the second part of verse 22. He says, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? Oh, but wait a minute. I thought that it was Pharaoh who was causing trouble for this people. Well, Moses acknowledges that, yes, actually, Pharaoh was causing trouble for this people. But he's also acknowledging here that God is in charge. Uh, that God is ultimately over this circumstance, that God can turn the heart of the king this way or that. And that means that God is ultimately in charge of, that is sovereign over the people of Israel's suffering. Some people hate to think of this. They don't like to think that God is sovereign, sovereign over the suffering of his people. Uh, they don't like to think of God as in charge of our pain because they think that if that's the case, then somehow God is sinfully responsible for our pain. But the Bible teaches otherwise. Uh, the Bible teaches that God is big, that God is sovereign, that he's in control. And the Bible teaches that God never does wrong. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? The answer is yes. God will always do what is right, and that includes always doing what is right as it relates to us in the midst of pain and suffering and adversity. And when you think about it, and I hope you'll think about it with me, that is the most comfortable thought imaginable. Oh, I would hate to think that Satan was somehow sovereign over my suffering. Satan would destroy me in a moment if he could. I would hate to think that blind fate, you know, just time and random chance was somehow the ultimate, the ultimate sovereign one over what I face in my life. That would be a 
hopeless, cruel joke of an existence. I would hate to imagine that other people are ultimately in charge of my suffering because people are often mean and capricious. But when I think about the fact that the the one, the ultimate one who is in charge of my suffering is the sovereign and good God, I find great hope there because he knows what he's doing. Uh, He knows the precise measure of suffering that I need to experience in order to be shaped into the image of Christ in precisely the way that he intends to shape me and you, brother or sister, into the image of Christ. He will only turn up the heat so far. He will never turn it up one degree more than what is necessary. And when the time comes, he will, by his grace, he will rescue. And that's what it means for him to be sovereign. What an amazing thing to think that God, who is all-powerful and infinitely wise and good, the one who can always be trusted, well, he is the one who's ultimately in charge over the private or public pain that I'm experiencing right now. Praise God that I can trust him. And remember this, if God sovereignly permits suffering in your life, there's a reason for it. Uh, it's, not, it's not possible for God to be capricious. Again, he knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He has a perfect plan. Uh, if there is suffering permitted in my life or your life, well, there's a reason for it because God is not capricious and he has good intentions for that suffering even if it seems almost unbearable to us. John Newton wrote this, said this, he said, the Lord's appointments to those who fear him are not only sovereign, but wise and gracious. He has connected their good with his own glory and has promised to make all things work together for their advantage. He chooses for his people better than they could choose for themselves. If they are in heaviness, there is a need be for it. And he withholds nothing from them, but what upon the whole, it is better that they should be without. Thus the scriptures teach, and thus we profess to believe. Now, brothers and sisters, looking at verses 22 to 24, we see the first step when we face adversity is to turn to our sovereign God. There's a second step that we see in this passage. Look with me, if you will, at verses 1 to 9 of chapter 6. Second step, remember God's character There's so much more in this passage than we can say this morning, but I hope you'll take time to go through these verses and just look at at what they teach you about the character of God. Verses 1 to 9, But the Lord replied to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go, and because of a strong hand, he will drive them from his land. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, But I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I've heard the groanings of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. Look at verse 1 and look at the very first word that you see there, that word now. 
Uh, it's an important word. In verses 22 to 24, what is Moses saying? He's basically saying, Lord, why haven't you acted? Why haven't you yet rescued us, for, rescued God's people as you promised to do? So how does the Lord answer? He says, now. And the idea is this, now is the time. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Really, that word now divides the book of Exodus into two parts. Everything that has happened up until the first verse of chapter 6, all of it is preparation for what will happen now as God takes it upon himself to act. Really, it's the hinge on which the book turns. You know, there were months and years even of preparation before D-Day, but all of that broke forth on June 6, 1944. Well, in the same way, all of the preparation that we have seen, the long years of preparation, it's now all going to give way, listen, into open combat between the false god, Pharaoh, and the true god, Yahweh. And what's going to be the outcome? Well, look at the second part of verse 1. The outcome is not in doubt at all. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go. Because of a strong hand, he will drive them out from his land. Uh, the strong hand there stands for God's power, for what God will do in Pharaoh's life. And what's going to be the outcome of God using a strong hand in Pharaoh's life? Well, Pharaoh, who is currently not allowing the people of Israel to go, will be moved by that strong hand to actually be the one who forces the people of Israel out. We'll see that. God will work so powerfully, the defeat of Pharaoh will be so absolute and complete that Pharaoh himself will be the one to send the people of Israel out. But do you notice the Lord isn't done at verse 1. In verses 2 to 8, the Lord gives a fuller revelation, both of what he has done in the past and of what he is about to do now. The past you see in verses 2 to 5, and what he's about to do now you see in verses 6 to 8. So let's look at those one at a time. Look at how he begins to tell Moses what he had done in the past he begins this section by declaring his name in verse 2. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. Uh, the, the name Lord there, it's, uh, it's the covenant name of God. It's Yahweh. It's the king is speaking. Uh, his name speaks of his self-existence, of his eternality. And what follows is really going to be a revelation of who God is. All of the words that he's saying here is a revelation of who God is, a revelation of the king's character. And notice four times from verses 2 to 8, uh, the Lord says, I am the Lord. He's telling us about himself. He's telling us who he is. Now he begins, verses 3 to 5, the Lord tells Moses three things that he'd done in the past. Verse 3, we see the Lord had appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but was not known to them by his name, the Lord. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all knew of the Lord, but they knew him by the name God Almighty. That's how he revealed himself to him. That's El Shaddai. It's uh, the all-powerful one. It's the all-sufficient God is the idea. But that was really only a partial revelation of who God is. And now Moses and the people of Israel are going to come to know what the name Yahweh means. You see, it's not that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know the name Yahweh, but they didn't understand the fullness of what that name means. But now Moses and the people of Israel, through this mighty act of deliverance, they're going to come to know who Yahweh is more fully. As he delivers the people of Israel from slavery. Second in verse 4, we see that the Lord had established his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is a covenant? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a promise based on a relationship. 
God himself had initiated this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through a relationship with them. And ultimately, the promise spoken of here in verse 4 is that they would inherit the promised land. Remember, Abraham only ever owned a small portion, just a tomb in the promised land. He didn't see the fulfillment of that. And yet, God would fulfill his covenant promise by delivering the people from slavery and bringing them into the promised land. Third, in verse 5, the Lord says that he's also heard the groaning of the Israelites and remembered his covenant. And of course, we read about that when we studied back in chapter 2, where it says the Lord knew. And the idea is that the Lord didn't just know about their suffering, but that the Lord cared. And when you take it all together, the Lord is saying that I am the Lord and I care. I care for my people and I will fulfill all of my promises. Now just stop and think, brother or sister, how that relates to you. Because one of the things we need to remember as we study through the Old Testament is that God doesn't change. And so this same God, if you are a follower of Jesus, this same God is your God. And he is just as committed to you as he ever was to his Old Testament people, Israel. And he will keep all of his promises. We'll talk about that. That leads us to verses 6 to 8 where there's this shift and the Lord now speaks to Moses and he tells Moses what he is about to do now for the people of Israel there. Verses 6 to 8. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forest labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forest labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Now, there's a lot there in those three verses. There are actually seven I will statements as God makes promises to his Old Testament covenant people uh, about what he's going to do now for them at this particular point in their history. I will bring you out of forced labor. I will rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession, seven promises. But really, when you think about it, those promises can be summarized as four specific promises. First, God will rescue his people from slavery to the Egyptians. He's going to rescue them. Second, God will redeem his people by bringing them out of their slavery. That word redeem really speaks of buying someone out of slavery. Third, God will adopt the people of Israel as his own covenant people. Uh, We will see that ceremony later on when we study chapters 19 to 24, where God in a special way makes the people of Israel his covenant people. And fourth, God will give the people of Israel the promised land as their possession. Those are amazing promises. He's going to set them free. He's going to rescue them. He's going to redeem them. He's going to adopt them. He's going to give them this glorious possession. Why? Why? Because God had set his sovereign covenant love on them, and he was going to do all that was necessary to save them from their slavery, to make them his own people, and then to bring them into the promised land. And you think, hearing these amazing promises, that the people of Israel would have been overjoyed. But that's not what you see when you look at verse 9. Now, when you look at verse 9, that's not what happens. Moses tells the people what God said and the promises that he made, but they didn't listen to Moses. Why? 
because of their broken spirit and hard labor. You see, Pharaoh's brutal workload was hurting more than the backs of the people of Israel. It was actually closing their ears to God's word. Now look at verses 1 to 9, and let's think together. How should these verses impact us? More specifically for this sermon, how can God's testimony of what he had done in the past and what he was getting ready to do for the people of Israel, how can that help us as we face adversity in our own lives today? Let me give you two ways that they help us. First, verses 1 to 9 help us because they remind us that God is gracious. Again, we're talking about a self-revelation of who God is. These verses point very clearly to the graciousness of our God. So, so think about all that God had done for his people in the past and all that he was getting ready to do now in their lives. He had revealed himself. He had promised them the land. He had cared about their suffering. And now he's going to set them free and redeem them and adopt them and guide them safely. And again, what had the people of Israel done to deserve this? Yeah, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, the only thing they contributed to their salvation was the slavery and sin that made it necessary. You see, they had done nothing to deserve this. Why was God acting? God was acting because our God is lavish in grace. Yeah, because he just overflows in grace towards his people. Uh, he's committed to doing good to his people. Brothers and sisters, when we face adversity, we can begin to think wrongly about God. We can begin to question his character, uh, to wonder why he's permitting us to suffer so much. But, but when we do that, what happens? When we believe Satan's lie that God is not good, that he's not gracious, uh, that he's not faithful, what are we doing? Ultimately, we are being cut off from the source of hope. No, we're being cut off from the only one who can actually help us in our suffering. No, when we face adversity, we must remember God's character. And what you see so clearly here is that our God is gracious to his people. We see more about that, though. We see more than that. We see also that our God is faithful. So that's the second thing we see, uh, that our God is faithful. In particular, the faithfulness of God is on display in the way he's committed to keeping his promises. Now, notice he makes these promises. He's going to set the people free. He's going to redeem them. He's going to adopt them. He's going to guide them and give them the possession of the promised land. And what happens when you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? What does God do? He keeps each and every one of those promises. Our God is a promise-making God because he is gracious. Our God is a promise-keeping God because he is faithful. But when we are facing adversity, when we're facing trials and difficulties, all too often, we can begin to wonder about God's faithfulness. Again, can I really trust him if he's allowing me to suffer so much? No, brothers and sisters, you can trust God as you face adversity because he is a God who makes wonderful promises to his people, and he is a God who keeps all of his promises. So I want you just to stop and think for a moment about the adversity that you're facing in your life this morning, uh, that punch in the mouth that you've experienced. What is it? It could be financial hardship. It could be a difficult boss. It could be betrayal by someone that you trusted. It could be wayward children. What promises has God made to you as a son or daughter of God that speaks into that particular suffering? Listen to a few of God's promises. Philippians 4, 19, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. If you're feeling weak this morning, that's a good promise for you. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or abandon you, which means that my emotions, if they tell me that God have left my life, if I'm a follower of Jesus, that's not true. He's promised he'll never leave or abandon. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Uh, friend, which one of these promises fits your situation? Uh, are you aware that this book is filled with these kinds of promises? And God in his wisdom has given specific promises for each and every possible circumstance you will ever experience in this life so that you will never go through anything that this book doesn't speak to, that God doesn't address and gives you a clear promise flowing out of his character so that you can cling to it as you go through the difficulty. It's a reminder that we must know God's word. It's a reminder that we must hide his word in our heart. We must know these promises so that we can pull them out when we need them and we can actively put our faith in God. Our Christ fellowship, God was faithful to keep his promises to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And God will be faithful to keep all of the promises that he has made to us. There is no trial, no difficulty, no adversity that God calls us to that he will not walk with us through. Our God is not stingy. He's generous. Our God is not unfaithful. Our God is faithful. And he's revealed himself as that so that we can rest in him. Let me make one more observation before we move on. It's really an observation we're going to make repeatedly as we go through Exodus. Because one of the things that makes this book so magnificent is that it is a glorious picture of the gospel. We see that again here. Uh, these seven I will promises of verses six to eight. What is this? This is really the gospel message being preached ahead of time. These things happened. First Corinthians 10 tells us the things that happened to the people of Israel happened as an example to us. That's true so that we can learn from their example. But it's more than that. You see God in his perfect wisdom here in, in the unfolding of his perfect plan of redemption, his rescue here of the people of Israel it is a perfect picture of the rescue that he has now accomplished in Jesus Christ for us. Think about the problem the Israelites faced. They were slaves under Pharaoh in Egypt. The problems we faced, brother or sister, was more severe. We were slaves to sin leading to death. Just as God set the Israelites free and redeemed them from Egypt, so the Father sent the Son, the Lord Jesus, this is what we're celebrating at Christmas, to come and to redeem us from our sins, to buy us back from our slavery to sin, to redeem us so that we might belong to God. Just as God adopted the people of Israel in the book of Exodus, bringing them into a covenant relationship with him, so he has adopted those of us who have put our trust in Christ as the very sons and daughters of God. It is the highest privilege imaginable to be a son or daughter of God. And just as God was faithful to bring the people of Israel into the promised land of Canaan, so he will be faithful to bring us into the true promised land, which is heaven. You see, all of these things happen so that we can learn from their example, but all of these things set before us this gospel that we have believed. We've experienced this salvation. Oh, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, we want to commend this gospel to you. Uh, that word gospel, it means good news. 
You see, Christianity is not a, it's not a religious philosophy about how to have a good life. Uh, it's not a, a set of rules that you have to keep in order to make God, who is somewhere up there, happy with you. That's not what Christianity is about. Most especially, Christianity is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And Christianity, the very heart of it, is this message of free salvation in Jesus. It's an offer of a gift. Oh, we give gifts at Christmas. Why? Because God has given us the greatest gift, this gift of Jesus. Why did we need Jesus? Because we were born sinful and separated from God. That is our problem. Our most fundamental problem is not those little things that are going wrong in our lives right now. Our most fundamental problem is the sin that we were born in that feels so natural to us, that, that keeps us from living for God and making much of him even though he's our creator, and instead turns us in on ourselves so that we make our lives all about ourselves in a million different ways. And it is that sin, it is that essential selfishness of life, it is that perspective of, of shrinking down the universe to the size of what I want right now and how I can make myself the most happy in my quickly passing life. What is that principle that works against us so that we disobey God's commands, so that we love other things more than him, so that we openly reject him, and so that we harm other people as well in little ways and in big ways when they get in our way. You see, we were by nature enslaved to sin. Uh, we were born, and, and because of our sin, we were born under the wrath of God as we worked out our sinfulness in practical ways. But God, in his grace, sent Jesus to rescue us from our slavery to sin. Well, friends, we were in bondage. And we could not get out of that bondage. But Jesus came. And why did Jesus come? Jesus came specifically to live a perfect life. You have to understand that. It was intentional. He came, born God, born a man. Why? So that he can live a perfect life because you and I have failed to live a perfect life. And God is holy and we're not holy. And there's no way we can stand in God's presence unless we're perfectly holy. And we've already messed up. So how can we possibly be perfectly holy? It is only through Jesus, the perfectly holy one, that lived a perfectly righteous life. And then Jesus, his mission was also what? To die. To lay down his life on the cross as a sacrifice, as a substitute. Bearing in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. On the cross, he bore in himself the wrath of God. He died, but then listen, he rose from the dead. And that's what makes this proclamation meaningful, you see. It's not just a thought or philosophy of someone who, who is perhaps a little more religious than you. That happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus rose from the dead as he promised he would. And now this message of salvation is proclaimed to you this morning. And it's a free gift. It's offered to you now, today, that if you will turn from your sins and put your hope in Jesus, put your trust in Jesus alone, if you will trust in him alone, you will be saved, which is to say all of your sins will be forgiven, past, present, and future, and you will be covered with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And all of that is offered to you this morning freely in Christ. Uh, this is the salvation that Jesus has accomplished. This is the salvation that's offered to you this morning, and you are surrounded by people who have received that free gift, and we would have no greater joy than to talk with you about what Jesus has done for us, our, our appeal to you, our desire for you. Uh, we would urge you this morning, do not wait. Put your trust in Christ today. Do that even now, and you will be saved. 
There is no better news than you will ever hear than that. Christ Fellowship, my prayer for us as a church, is that we will never get tired of hearing the gospel. That we will just be refreshed each time we think about the fact that the Son of God loved us and gave his life for us so that we might be forgiven. There's a second step in facing adversity. We must remember God's character. There is, more briefly, a final step. Third point this morning, step three, rest in God's sovereignty. One of the marks of the Bible's truthfulness is that it is honest about the failures of its heroes. If this was a book written by men, those men that were writing the book would always put themselves in the best possible light. They would write of themselves as great heroes and great conquerors and great religious people. But as you read through the Bible, it is shocking and even scandalous at times to think of the way that the people who are presented to us as heroes of the faith were actually notorious sinners. Uh, Abraham is a liar who puts his wife's virtue at risk. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Peter was a coward who denied the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. You see, the scripture is very clear about these things. Why? Because they happened. And because the Bible is a reliable record of what occurred. Now, in verses 10 to 13, we see that Moses, Moses doesn't always perfectly respond either. Uh, He did not perfectly respond to the adversity in his life here. God was faithful to Moses despite his failure, though. And that's what we see in these verses. And that's what's such good news. Because again, we are often like Moses, not responding well to the adversity in our lives. Look at verses 10 to 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from his land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, if the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me since I am such a poor speaker? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. I wonder if Moses had been excited when he went and shared those those seven I will statements from God with the people. I wonder if he had been encouraged to think that that God would make these promises. But you see in verse 9 that when he did so and when the people of Israel did not believe him, that it impacted him. He was hit in the mouth again. And when God comes to him now and tells him to go tell the Israelites, to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, Moses is really in no condition to act. You notice he actually doesn't even speak to God. He kind of speaks in the presence of God. He says, almost as if talking to himself, if the Israelites will not listen to me, how then will Pharaoh listen to me since I'm such a poor speaker? Uh, Moses is discouraged. Moses is discouraged in himself. He somehow convinced himself that the issue here is his own ability or his own lack of ability. As if the problem here is that he can't speak well enough to convince others. You see, he's discouraged. And if you're facing adversity this morning, and I know many of you are, it's very easy to become discouraged. Why? Because adversity and trials and setbacks are hard. I was speaking to a brother this morning before the service who just mentioned that, that he's known the truths we're talking about this morning for 40 years, and he has to keep reminding himself every single day that these things are true. Why? Because adversity is hard. Because trials are difficult. But I want you to notice how the Lord responds to Moses in verse 13. Do you notice once again that God is gentle? That's something you should notice when you read through the Bible. 
When people are being honest with God and sincere, when people are discouraged, just note how gentle God is. He doesn't rebuke Moses. What does he do? He simply speaks to Moses and Aaron, and he gives them further commands concerning both the Israelites and the Pharaoh. What does he do? He walks with them through the adversity. Do you notice that God is not concerned at all about Moses' lack of ability to speak well? Why not? Because God knows that he's sovereign, and God knows what his sovereign plan is, and God knows precisely what has happened, and God is committed to graciously walking with Moses all the way while he accomplishes his perfect plan. Uh, Maybe if you were honest this morning, you haven't responded perfectly to the adversity you're facing in your life this week. Perhaps like Moses in this passage, you've given in to worry, you've given in to discouragement, perhaps you've focused on your failures and your limitations, and you've wondered how you're ever going to make it through. I hope you'll look at these verses and be encouraged. Why? Because here we're being instructed to do, to do what? Not to look at our failures, but to look at our sovereign God. Not to look at our limitations, but to look to God in His glorious sufficiency for all things. In other words, we're being instructed to rest in the sovereignty of God. God continues to work out His perfect plan, and nothing will stop it. And that's the most hopeful thing at all for you. I don't know what the next 1, 5, 10, 20, or 60 years of your life is going to look like. I do know that if you belong to Jesus, God is going to walk with you through each and every day of those years, and you will reach the farther shore of heaven. I do know that you will see him face to face. I do know that the day is coming when every tear is going to be wiped away from your eye. I do know that 20,000 years from now, you're still going to be praising God for his faithfulness to you in this life. And my prayer is that God will help us continue to walk with him as we rest in his sovereignty and in his faithfulness, even as we face adversity. And even as we acknowledge that adversity is hard. But praise God that even when we face difficulties and trials, we're never left alone. That God in his kindness gives us practical steps that we can take. That we can turn to God and we can remember God's character. And we can rest in God's sovereignty as we continue to walk with him all the way home. And God is faithful and he'll do it. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you this morning as the gracious and faithful God.